Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the technical podcast about the Elixir programming language and ecosystem. I'm your host, Desmond Bowie, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. How's it going? It's fine, Chris. How are yeah. you? Uh, still disappointed that England didn't win the World Cup, but it was understandable. That was a bummer. Yeah. I, I'm honestly not into sports, so I don't even know why I said that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like as an Englishman, that's that's where my head should be at. So I have a couple of British friends here in LA, and they're not really sports fans either, but I think when your country is in the semifinals for the World Cup, then you find it in you. You just do it. You just go for it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard not to get swept up in it. Like, I was out to lunch one day, I didn't even know there was a game on, and then you walk into the bar, and everyone is staring at the TV, and you think, alright, I, I guess I'll watch this game, and get wrapped up with all these other human beings. Definitely. I was uh, pretty wrapped up in it, so, uh, despite my lack of liking sports. You wanted football to come home? It didn't. It didn't come home, but... Honestly, it was it was good regardless, so I enjoyed it. Enjoyed the spectacle. Yeah. What's been going on with the Elixir ecosystem, Desmond? Uh, Elixir 1.7 was just released, or the uh, first release candidate came out um, recently. Pretty exciting. Some of the things that I'm most excited about are honestly around the logger. We've been doing some stuff at work with our error logging, because we're hosted on Google Cloud, and it makes um, capturing the log outputs a little weird. So we wrote a custom logger backend to capture the error logs, because that's mostly what we're interested in. Not mostly, but those are like particularly important. And the bummer about Erlang's error logger is crash logs are not formatted that well for external logging systems. You just get a bunch of uh, text lines, and it doesn't play nicely with Google's log output, or if you're using an external service like a Logstash or Timber or something, I don't think it works that well. Mm. So uh, what's in the changes then? What have they been doing? All of the changes? Or just the logger? Just the logger ones, I mean. Well, in particular, instead of hooking into Erlang's error logger, the Elixir logger will return a tuple of what went wrong, showing the module and the initial arguments and basically everything you would see in a crash report is just formatted nicely in this tuple so you don't have to parse out a random uh, string dump that's nice that's a good change yeah you know there's always small things baked into these releases and there's a couple of marquee features like uh the new module doc syntax or the doc syntax where you can add authors and they move the um deprecated and since fields into this and those make the headlines but and there's often little use cases that are kind of particular to your situation that sometimes get buried in these, which make you smile. That's why it's always worth going through the, the release notes, right? Or the release candidate notes. Mm-hmm. And then sharing them with your team and looking like uh, some kind of knowledgeable thought leader. Yes, we have a lot of experience with them, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> Trying. Um <laughs> I actually totally missed that. So, like, I didn't even see the 1.7 announcement. So, I'm really glad that you <laughs> told, told me about that. I am still fully in vacation mode. So, yeah. Well, you should listen to the podcast, Chris. There's a lot of stuff to learn. There you go. I'm, I guess I am becoming more and more post technical as the days go on. So, how much Elixir do you write? Day to day at the moment. Or week to week? I don't think you should ask this on the podcast because I think it like <laughs> completely, completely like 
removes all my credibility. But maybe that's what you wanted. <laughs> Do you have someone over there just like feeding you lines? Are you reading this from a teleprompter? Yes, effectively, I have my team who just team me up with knowledge, and that just you know it, that does it for the week. So I could tell the one time when you pronounced the word tuple instead of tuple, I uh, knew that you had no idea what you were talking uh, about. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable! Uh, for everyone out there who knows that it's pronounced tuple, uh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. That, that's that's it. Um, but. Yeah, I guess I actually haven't. I, I honestly, I wrote some JavaScript today. Actually, this seems to be a running theme. Maybe I'm just writing more and more JavaScript. Um, I don't know about if you've heard about JavaScript, but it's this language that, you know, it's kind of eating the world. So, really, is there like a specific platform that it only comes on, or where can I use it? <laughs> uh, it runs everywhere. Places where you didn't even want it to run, it runs. So, there you go. Places we don't talk about in polite conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if you want to start a JavaScript podcast, you might have to do it without me. <laughs> no, I'm still very committed to this to this world. Well, that's good because I have a question for you. Um, several uh -oh. times in past episodes, you've brought up event bus architecture in your application. And oh, yeah. I, I wanted to hear a little more from you about why you always do this, what it's useful <laughs> for, when people might want to build one into their, into their app and what the best way of approaching that is. Imagine if I just said, like, don't do it or something and just ended the conversation there. But no, I, I uh, yes, as Desmond pointed out, I'm a huge fan of event buses. And I, yeah, okay, I, I will start off with saying what we have at Frame and why we did that. I think that's probably a good starting point. So if you... I mean, I think we've all been there on systems that have grown to a point of complexity where you need to do a lot of kind of side effects as a result of an action. Um, especially at Frame, we had a lot of that. So a few of those side effects for us were things like sending analytics events, sending push notifications, or sending emails, things like that. So these kind of transactional things that happen as a, as a side effect of an, another action. And I think eventually in a system... If you keep adding on all of those side effects, your code becomes a basically like your service code ends up being like this dumping ground of, of those kind of side effect actions. And a very good way to decouple that is through an event bus. So when I say event bus, I'm probably using the term completely incorrectly for a start. I, I don't think I use it in like the enterprise enterprise event bus kind of terms that others do. But for me, what that means is that you have some kind of named event in the system and you have listeners for that event and something causes that event to happen and then you have listeners that pick up that event and perform actions as a result of that event happening in the system. And what that does is enables you to decouple out your service code from a lot of these side effects. And I feel like it does a really good job of making sure that you adhere to some kind of limited responsibility principle. I'm not going to say single responsibility because I don't know if I always agree with that all the time. So uh, I don't like being too dogmatic, but I think it does a really good job of saying that like we have these actions that happen, they're isolated to one place, and then any side effects of that happen elsewhere. So what we've been able to do at Frame as a result of having this event bus is basically... Let's say that 
uh, you're posting a comment. Comments make up a, a big part of the interaction that you do on frame on a daily basis. So we have an event bus where the comment gets posted. The service's job is to send a message back to the event bus that says, hey, this is a comment that's been posted. Here's some information about that comment. Here's maybe who authored that comment as well. And here's the comment um, struct itself. And then from there, that event gets passed down and then we'll have some consumers. Like one of those consumers will be something that sends analytics or UX metrics. Um, so we use segment. Desmond and I can talk at length about segment things, I guess, at some later point. But uh, segment will basically send that to other services as well for us. And then what we have, we might have something like send out a notification to everyone who uh, was a member of a project that needed to know about that comment being posted. That would be a side effect that we capture in the event bus. Um, and then we might have something like even bus the cash or something like that might be in a, a side effect of something that might happen in an event bus. And for us, what this does is like allows us to really decouple this kind of architecture. And When you say put side effects in the event bus, which side effects? I mean, you mentioned sending emails and posting to analytics, but presumably you put the comment in the database mm -hmm. in the main, in line with the main business logic. Yeah, absolutely. So imagine that you've got a service. So that service's job is to perform an action, right? So its responsibility is saying a comment comes in, I'm taking some params, maybe doing some validation and then saving that comment. And in this case, yes, to a database, definitely. So that would all happen in the service. And that, that side effect is captured in the service. But then as a result of that saving, then other actions need to occur. And that's what we use the event bus for in our instance. But haven't you just divorced locality from what goes on? Like if Absolutely. you're saying, okay, I make a comment and then this other stuff is happening, but I've hidden that other stuff from the, the action. Like, what do you gain from that? Okay, so for me, you gain some really nice things. So first of all, isolation of concerns or separation of concerns in this case. Like, you're saying that, okay, you remove locality, right? Like, so you remove the fact that you know exactly what actions are occurring as a result of that event being fired. But I, I feel like you still get that through kind of like grepability in your code base anyway. Like, you can always search for like, we have named events and we actually use structs to do that um, because of protocols, but we can always search for that struct and see where it's being used to understand what events are occurring. So in the case that you just described or we were going through earlier, the new comment being created, that is a struct that's called new comment, uh, literally as a struct name, so we can always grep for it and understand where it's being used. So I don't feel like the locality thing comes into it too much for me. Obviously, Yes, there's a bit of indirection there, right? But it's, it feels like it's something that's easy to overcome. The, the benefits there is like in our service code, we're no longer testing all those side effects or mocking out all of those like whatever else is happening. We're only just testing the service. And then in all of our services, what we do is we just test that the event is being sent on the event bus or being delivered to the event bus. And that's it. That's where the service tests end. And then in each kind of underlying consumer of the event bus, we can have these really isolated tests that say, given this event, I expect this thing to happen, right? So you're only testing each one of those things in isolation. And that, that to me is a really nice benefit. So how do you, um, how do you implement this sort of thing in Elixir? You mentioned using structs for each event. So I, I gather 
for each possible event, you have a struct. Is there the same shape for each of these structs? Is there different shapes of data? And then where does it get published to? And how, like, what does a consumer look like? Yeah, so we actually leverage GenStage to do a lot of this on our side. So um, we have, so first of all, we run a multi-node application where the event bus is not distributed across all of those nodes. So if an event happens, it's local to that node, right? So all of the processing for that event will happen on that particular instance. So by that, I mean that we have no centralized publishing mechanism or centralized queue and consumers that read off of that queue. So for us, what happens is the event comes in, goes into gen stage, gets broadcast to all of the consumers. So we actually use the, um, the broadcast uh, dispatcher to do that. All of those consumers receive that event and then we'll do some processing as a result. Some of that processing might be a no-op, right? So we might have some consumers that will say, I'm not interested in that event and they'll just skip over it. And the way that we implement that is we have structs per event type. So like I mentioned before, the new comment one would be a struct. It would receive an item and that item might be the uh, the actual entity that's created. So the actual DB struct that we pass around through this event bus. And then we might also pass a few ancillary pieces of data, like the person who, who is authoring the action. Um, so the current user. And then maybe we have some relations as well that we pass through. It depends on the type. But all of that will go through the event bus, get distributed get out to all of these consumers. Each consumer will receive that event and then basically do its processing. And some of that processing might be a no-op. So each consumer will have a protocol that we implement if we want to implement, if we want that, that consumer to implement this kind of, uh, to respond to this event on the event bus. So for us, that would be, um, so let's take the new comment example. So we might have like an analytics consumer that we have on the event bus. And we, we always name our like protocols ABL or something like that. So we might have like trackable in this case. So we'd have a def implementation for the new comment event with the trackable protocol effectively. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'd have something that would probably, I, I think most of the time we call it process for every single function that happens there. And then we just implement that protocol. Is your event bus a separate app in your umbrella? And then how do you register consumers? Does it define them explicitly or do consumers subscribe to the event bus? Yeah. Um, so our, our event bus is not a separate app right now. So our event bus is, so we have all of our business logic and by business logic, I, I guess I mean schemas, uh, services, uh, like ancillary modules around that kind of stuff. We have all of that extracted into an app, and that's purely because we share that across a couple of applications. And our event bus actually lives inside of that that app right now, and it is an app in a in the. I'm trying to think of Dave Thomas's terminology right now. Um, <laughs> but it's an app in the sense that it has a supervision tree. And part of that supervision tree is this event bus, right? So when I'm saying that I want to run, we call it core. So it's Frame.io core. When I want to actually run that inside of my application, I want to run this application. The supervision tree that I start actually includes this event bus and all of the consumers for the event bus, right? So... 
Um, to answer your second point there, your second question, we, we don't register the consumers. We, we just start them in terms of the supervision process. So every single consumer is effectively, we actually do this thing where each consumer is actually a supervisor. Mm-hmm. And then inside of that supervisor, we have, we use dynamic supervisors and then we have pooled processes that will, that will basically be consumers off of the queue. Um, and we do that so we can process more in parallel. So just to be clear, that's so if you are getting a bunch of new comment events at once, then you fork off the work. Exactly. Yeah. So that the problem with the broadcast dispatcher is that every single consumer on the broadcast dispatcher has to process the event before it can move on. And, and that can cause like, if you're, if you're talking about external processes, right? Like if we're talking about, we are now dependent on talking to Stripe, let's say, because some mm-hmm. of our event bus does that. And Stripe acts in like two seconds or something. Now you've got a bottleneck in your event bus, right? And you're actually basically being synchronous in that case. So what we do to get around that is have pools of consumers everywhere. And that, that pool size varies on what, what's going on. We actually have an ability to, to customize that pool size and the number of consumers per uh, consumer type. And then what we can do in that case is then say like the act happens really quickly and we don't get backups that often. And so on this note, we actually track all of that in terms and send tons of metrics into Datadog about like what's being the slowest consumer right now? Hmm. Where are the bottlenecks? You know, and if we really went further with this, we could implement something like, I don't know, um, like the, the, like the, the broken fuse kind of idea, you know, where circuit you say breaker. circuit breaker, that's the pattern. Yeah. The circuit breaker pattern. So we'd say like, you know, if stripes down, just skip over that consumer or something instead. That, that, that could be a something that we do. So side note, does Datadog handle like just the biggest number of events that you can think of? Like across all of their clients? Yeah, what, what do you, oh yeah, fuck, I wouldn't want to run Datadog's <laughs> infrastructure. I think, like, when we went through it, we have like 130,000 named events going to Datadog. Uh-huh. Which is quite a lot. <laughs> it, it is a lot, yeah. Yeah, I think they kind of yelled at us the other day because they were like, you're, you have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, but because some of these things are like dynamically registered and we send lots of different kinds of metrics, uh, it just, mm-hmm. it happens to be a shit ton. So, hmm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Datadog's so useful for that stuff, though. Just like pumping in shit tons of metrics and then being able to display it. It's it's amazing for that. Yeah, it's great. We're actually just getting it set up in our app now. Yeah, I, I, and if you're if you're doing that, um, highly recommend the Statics library for doing all this stuff. It's it's a very fast kind of statsd implementation, and it, it doesn't seem to block. I don't think so. It seems pretty good. Cool. So let's go back to your. Event bus, the consumers. I'm curious because you've set up scaling pools of workers. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, uh, an open source library that you use for this or did you build an internal library to help you with this? So it's all written around the dynamic supervisor. And by using that, uh, it just it, it kind of handles a lot of this stuff for you. So that comes in the gen stage library. Um, or did they, did they move that to core? I can't remember. Uh, gen stage? Yeah. I think so. No, no, no. I think it was specifically this dynamic supervisor. Dynamic supervisor is in core, yeah. It is? Okay. Yeah, it replaced the simple one-for-one strategy of regular supervisor. Although, that always right. bothered me because with the normal supervisor, you can always start extra children. 
Mm. And this one starts with no children, and then you can just add children, right? Yeah, you can you can add children to a regular supervisor, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. But like the one for one, it, it comes really it becomes really useful in the in the case where you don't know how many children you want, and you're not starting with any, right? So you can just add some at that point. Yeah, but how is that different from starting a regular supervisor with one for one, and then adding some children to that? Uh oh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. Uh, if any of our listeners know the know. answer, please hit us up on Twitter. Yeah, it's been a while since I looked into that, actually. And then you can be a guest host or guest on an episode of Elixir Talk. And we can talk about supervisors. Definitely. Would love to do that. I was trying to find all of our code that does this. I'm just like frantically looking through. But uh, yeah. So uh, those pools of workers are basically tasks that are supervised by the dynamic supervisor. And they just get spun up and do their job, log if they they did something or failed. And if they fail... So something that's really interesting about event bus is if you don't care about the ordering of events, if something fails, you can just like add it back to the queue, right? So if you want to say, like at least try this three times before you give up, we can just add it back on with like the, the number of retries that it's at. And then if it exceeds that, we just kill it from the queue. And then something else that we've done recently is more of a persistent model for our event bus. So... If a particular consumer fails, we will take that event, de-enqueue it, and then we will store it in a DB, and then we have a cron job that will run and like try and retry all of those events later. Hmm. But obviously, this only works if you don't care about like the, the the like the delivery time of those events, right? So if we had push notifications, you don't really want to be sending those like three hours later or something. No. So that's something that we. Uh, we only do on particular types of uh, consumers, depending on what that is. So, like something like payments code, right? We don't. If that fails, we're in. We're not in a great place. So, um, in that case, we wanna we wanna make sure that we do some retries. Yeah, I might even put that in the main code and not off in an event. Absolutely, yes, yeah. Sorry, like in that case, yes, we do. But there's like Stripe events that we process in the background that are similar, but. Yeah. So how is it implementing this event bus? We can save some of the pros and cons about event buses in general for a different talk. But how is it doing this in Elixir? Um, honestly, it was incredibly simple. And that was because we have, first of all, GenStage that like literally in the examples for GenStage, there is an event, like there's an event dispatcher in the example code. And we started with that as our, as our like proof of concept for this idea. Um, and we took that and then expanded on it, obviously, quite significantly. But that part was very, very simplistic. GenStage is a pretty good candidate for doing that. Like, if you think about, like, lots of consumers and they're, you're not really doing, like, the GenStage true model where you're asking for, for work, right? Like, you're just, like, always pushing work to it. Mm-hmm. But um, the programming model kind of works. I guess we could have done it with a, honestly, like, just with a Gen server as well. Does it back up at all? Like, do messages back up in the queue? Yeah, we we have a um, we keep a pool size. I don't think we've ever ever gone over that though. Like, generally, like the event bus responds like it's on an order of like under like probably ten milliseconds on average for each one, each consumer. So, like, we never really get a, a build up. And because the other thing to remember is because all of our nodes are load balancing traffic, right? So we might have 15 API nodes running at one time. Mm-hmm. So you've got 15 instances of the event bus. And 
most of the time that work is fairly evenly distributed. You don't get too many CPU spikes of each node doing work way too much. But something that we've been talking about a lot is if we connect all those nodes together, instead of the local node processing every single event on the event bus, using the uh, last used algorithm to basically send the work to another node um, and then having that node process that event. And the idea there is obviously to better distribute work across a cluster because we have some types of consumers that might be like really, really like expensive to run. So like we might say, oh, I want to notify everyone on this on this project once a comment is posted, right? But like there's no... that that number of people is unbounded. So you might have one node that ends up doing like a fuck ton of work. Sorry, excuse my language. But um, ends up Dude, doing a lot of work as a result. cursing this whole podcast. I know. Actually, I'll probably curse like most podcasts. I don't know why that was the time where I decided to say sorry. But um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, so you might end up in that place where like one thing ends up like doing lots more work than another. And the idea now is that if we connected everything, we can more evenly distribute that work around the cluster. Or, or what if you just made the event bus its own OTP application and put it on its own node in the cluster? Yeah, yeah. I know. It's something else I thought about. Yeah. Then you could scale the node up with like crazy CPU and memory because that's yeah. what does all the work. Honestly, the other way that we've looked at it in the past, like something else we looked at in the past is just using something like SQS, right? Like mm-hmm. just plop a queue or like plop something else in front of it and then swap out gen stage for that. But that's the beauty in our implementation. Like, we started off really, really simple. And I, I honestly, I'm like a huge fan of this. Like, don't, don't like, don't overcomplicate it. And like, we're running like a, a lot of events through our event bus right now. And, it, and it, it works perfectly fine. But like, if we ever got to the place where the, we couldn't handle the scale, I think that, um, a good solution for us, like, we, we might want to say, like, oh, the ordering of events is actually incredibly important. So let's put Kafka in front of it, right? So now our publisher publishes to Kafka and we have consumers off of it that just read from there. So I'm just looking at the stats right now. We do about 21,000 publishers a second, I think, something like that at the moment. That's a big number. Yes, and it spikes at different times, of course, depending on what's going on. Well, you also don't have persistence in your queues, right? No, and honestly, like, yes, that is a problem where if we had something like SQS, we could, SQS, you do an ACK off the queue to say that, to, to acknowledge that you've read it. Um, otherwise, it persists and you can keep reading off of it. Mm-hmm. And that would be a way, obviously, if we move to something centralized, we could, we could do something like that, right? But like, I, I don't know. We, we haven't, I don't, I don't think we've had a time yet where we're dropping so many events that like it's been actually very problematic. So the, the, the like non-persistent nature of the queue hasn't ever caused us a problem so far. Mm-hmm. I used RabbitMQ quite a bit a few years ago and I really like that. Also written right. in Erlang, you can cluster that. Yeah. 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 I mean, that would honestly, it would be a probably a pretty good replacement for what we're doing right now. And like, uh, but again, like that's why I like what we have. Like, we started off with something that we didn't have to think about like running external infrastructure for. And then if we get to the place where we're like, oh, actually, this isn't working out for all of our needs right now, like we can swap it out. I, I, and it, it wouldn't be like throwing away a fuck ton of code. It would just be like we, we'd be getting rid of what a publisher and some consumers. It wouldn't, you know, like mm-hmm. and the protocol 
approach could still work because you'd be reading off that queue and you could still have protocol implementations. So I, I'm like, I'm extremely happy where we've netted out and we keep adding consumers to this thing. I think we're at, I'm just going to like count two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16. We're at 17 consumers right now that deal with lots of different kinds of things on our queue, mm-hmm. um, for, on our event bus, sorry. Um, everything from writing audit logs to sending emails to broadcast into a socket service, various things like that. And, you know, this thing has scaled pretty well with us. And like our memory usage hasn't gone up significantly. And we haven't seen too many problems with this, with this approach right now. So as a technology leader, I guess I'm pretty happy with the approach that we're doing and pretty happy with what the team's doing with it. So customer review, A++++. Definitely. Yeah, would would do it again. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think about like problems that we've really had. I think like actually one of the one of the folks on the team has talked about this. Um, so something that we don't have in the event bus right now is I mentioned before that we do tests to a point in the service where we say like, make sure it fires an event to the event bus, right? And that's where like the service test ends. Um, and we always just ensure that something has been broadcast. Something that gets problematic for us is an integration test that is like that makes sure that all of the consumers of the event bus are really listening for that event, and 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 that's something that we don't currently have. So I think we had a couple of instances in production where we shipped some code and we broke a couple of consumers on the event bus because we changed the definition or something like that, and the tests weren't great, and they didn't catch that regression uh, or that that change, I guess, in that case, and like. At that actually caused some problems for us. So I think that could be solved with some like proper integration or end-to-end tests, maybe higher up the stack. But that could be like something else's responsibility as well. Uh, and I'm, I don't think I have too many other problems with it. We macroatize quite a lot of the code as well, um, for better or for worse, depending if you like that. Uh-huh. And that really like basically our consumers end up being like very very short and i'm i'm a huge fan of that as well yeah for sure i think that was the basis of eli's question a couple of weeks ago right using protocols and consumers or using macros and consumers for just this sort of thing yeah absolutely mm-hmm. cool so the bottom line number is 21000 publishes a second yeah and it goes up to about 30 so it's doing quite a lot that's pretty good I think it's a, is that second. Is that across your cluster? Is that on a single node? Uh, so I'm just looking at the graph to make sure I'm reading it right. The graph? The graph. <laughs> I think that I got that wrong. It might be a minute. <laughs> Hang on, let me check. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got it wrong. Sorry, everyone out there. It's, it's like a thousand a second. And it spikes to like 3,000 a second. So I was off by a magnitude of 10. Mm. So, sorry. Well, maybe that disqualifies it for some people's use cases. Yeah, although like because it, like we can just keep scaling up the, 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 the API cluster and like say we're dealing with more and more and more traffic. Like the idea is like it's, it's still horizontally scalable to a point, right? Like because you're, cause you're dealing with this like on every single node, you can just keep adding API nodes and it should just keep scaling up in theory. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Cool. Sounds interesting. I flirted with event-driven architecture a couple years ago. This was on a Ruby project. Mm. I haven't tried to do an Elixir, but I, 
as you said, Gen Stage is sort of built for this this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And I think back about the times in applications where I haven't had something like this, and that the kind of problems that caused me down the road, and that's what tend like where I tend to feel like it has been a real win for us in having that separation of these different concerns and like the isolation in these consumers being able to say like this consumer concerns itself with this thing and I can test that in complete isolation from everything else has been a really big win for us. I, I think like new devs ramping up to the code base, there's, there's, there's definitely some overhead in coming in and understanding like, whoa, we have all these different consumers and they all have their own responsibility and it's a lot to kind of keep in your head sometimes. But like the reality is that you're writing a service and you only really need to think about that service and then you think about like the consumers or the things that are downstream from that service separately. And that, that to me is like nice. Yeah, with the trade-off of integration tests are more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, um, that's my one big caveat. Like we haven't figured that out. Well, we'll see how that stands because it seems like the pendulum is swinging back towards monoliths. Mm. I say Do, that you because, think so? well, there was the one article that the one person published, although she worked for some famous company. What was it? It wasn't Segment, but it was like some famous analytics company. And I think they were a node shop, but they jumped on board the microservices train five years ago. And then, <laughs> and then they were like, this sucks. <laughs> microservices are a big pain in the ass. You got versioning, you got handle deployments and serialization, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and That's testing a lot. is difficult and so what they ended up doing is just going back to a single application yeah i i mean i don't i can definitely see where like microservices i'm you know what like that i guess this topic has been kind of trodden on a lot but like it's probably right for some teams but like if you're starting out it's probably not like the best idea especially if you've got so much there's just a lot of overhead to think about, right? And there's ways to make it simpler. You can think about, like, I guess, something like AWS Lambda or something else like that, function as a service kind of stuff. It's been a form of microservices that makes it a bit simpler in some ways because you, you don't always have to think about all of the deployment woes with that. Everything can kind of be quite simplistic. But I don't know. There's, there's still just a lot that goes <laughs> along with microservices. I've heard horror stories about people having to upgrade java versions across hundreds of microservices and then you know running canary versions of those services in production and understanding where like something's breaking doing rollbacks and yeah and you're also littering your code with checks around remote calls like you can't just ignore the fact that the other side of your call is across the data center so you end up having these circuit breakers everywhere this retry logic and it makes your code very cumbersome, I think. I mean, it's it's probably right for a certain scale of business. I, I can imagine, and I know people have said about, like, would Amazon have been able to scale if they didn't do something like that? And it's probably has enabled them to, like, you know, really, like, 10 or 100x, like, what they're doing. Although I don't think Werner Vogels is listening to this podcast to get ideas about what to do with Amazon. No, no, it's very true. I I mean, I think like if you're starting out or you have a smaller app, like you can get a lot of the benefits. I I think we've said this so many times, but like umbrella applications and some of the benefits you get there with it. Although maybe that's not always true. And it also introduces some overhead and like some complexity, but... Mm -hmm. But at least if you start off, and this is what I would advise people starting an app 
uh, right now in July of 2018 is don't even mess with an umbrella app. Just write a regular application. You can leverage Phoenix contexts, which are just bounded context modules. It's not anything special. Right. And use that to kind of neatly delineate different parts of your application. And then one day when you need to put it behind a gen server or into its own app, like it's very easy to extract it. And so you get all the wins and you're, you're more or less future-proofing yourself. Future-proofing is perhaps a strong word, but there's a very smooth upgrade path for when you need it. Definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I think we probably wax lyrical in this like podcast about that kind of stuff from, but I, I, I really do agree. I think that start simple, start with a single app. Don't go overboard. Start with an event bus. I, I think it depends, right? It depends on the complexity in your application. Oh, no, like if you're only dealing with like a single type of event, don't do it, right? Like for us, like we had so many different things going on as a result of an action that it made so much sense, but like, I can imagine if you're like, oh, I'm sending emails and that's all I'm doing. Like, don't don't over-architect and like go for an event bus there. I think putting one in at that point isn't that isn't that complex. I'm I'm really glad we did it. I personally feel like it was a very good decision on our part. It's allowed us to really easily kind of meet the business requirements that we've been trying to meet um, and deliver code pretty quickly. Um, and it, and have this like very extensible model that we can just keep leveraging and building on top of, um, to the extent where like we were specking out doing webhooks, right? Like, and webhooks are now just another side effect of something else happening. They can just be pushed down into a consumer of the, on the event bus, and like, boom, that to me is great. I can stand up there in a meeting and be like, well, you know what? This isn't as crazy as we thought it would be to do because we picked a good architectural pattern in the beginning. Mm-hmm. one that was right for our business but again i think that's that's the decision you have to make you know and don't expect you to get it right all the time but like, don't call okay us up if it goes wrong, wrong. <laughs> yeah no like I, I, architecture evolves like seeing architecture as static is is very short-sighted architecture evolves over time and it evolves with the needs of your business. And your business is never static, right? Especially if you're in a fast-moving business like a startup. You're constantly rethinking about what you need to do. And you need a, you need something that can respond to that. And that's about having something where you're neatly isolating concerns and keeping things nice and separate from one another. And like, just do that. Just do the best you can do. And then respond to the changes in the best way you can, you know, and just roll with it sometimes. Yeah. But have a have a have an eye for where it's going. I think that's so important. Like knowing that you're here, but you really want to be like you're in point X and you want to be at point Y. And just even if that path is like so windy, that's that's fine. There's a really good book on this, uh, or I think it's a blog post. Can't remember. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But yeah, it's a, it's called the evolving architecture, and it's something that every every person who deals with I'm not even going to call them software architects, but every person who deals with the idea of software architecture should just keep in mind. You know, you're you, 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 if you're thinking about one time single purpose architecture, you're you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I would add that I look at it as this is all going to change. I look at it as not throw away exactly, but just it's all temporary. And by 
uh, accretion, some of it ends up lasting forever. And we all have stories about that one sure. throwaway script that is still in production 10 years later. But if it is, then it worked. And that's fine. Like, it's fine if it works as it's simple. So when I'm working with Elixir, and this is something that I, I like about the language, is it is very easy to change pieces of it. It's easy to pull out functionality or to rework how functions are called. Just the other day, I was refactoring a, a system that had five or six modules that all talk to each other. And we realized that the responsibilities were kind of mixed up among them. So I had to enforce boundaries and, and, and think more about what should be responsible for what. It was very easy to do. It's very easy to refactor. And as we heard last week, I use Vim. So I don't have like advanced refactoring tools. I just have a text editor and, and grep. And it's pretty, pretty straightforward. So these changes aren't hard to make. And I think it's important to have that voice in the back of your head as you're writing code or designing an architecture that this could change. Definitely. It's nice if, if you can say, no, we, we feel very comfortable with this. We can put a lot of thought into it, but it's probably going to change. And I think with that, you've had all of our collective wisdom for, for this week, right? Yeah, I was <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Just knowledge, or yeah. maybe, Even who knows? You were doing most of the talking, it was still... Honestly, I'd love to hear uh, from the folks out there if you've, if you've had kind of experiences where the, this kind of architecture hasn't worked, or the approach hasn't worked, or, you know, you, you completely disagree, or you want to you wanna know a bit more, just get in touch with us. Love to carry on chatting about this. Um, you can do that via our Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash elixir talk. Or you can open up an issue on our GitHub page if you want to talk to us that way, which is github.com slash elixirtalk slash elixirtalk. We also have a web page, which is elixirtalk.com. We're very, very consistent with our brand. That's right. All elixirtalk. <laughs> All the time. time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for listening. And be sure to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. That always helps. Tell, tell your friends about us as well if they're just getting into Elixir you know we, we love to help those folks out as well Desmond is also hosting a fantastic event next month in LA which is the MPEX retreat which is going to be a, in a mansion with a pool a dope mansion with a pool a dope mansion I don't like saying that I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't sound that cool <laughs> but yeah you should check that out that's at mpex.co forward slash LA um, we'll put all of this in the show notes but thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll see you again next time thanks <laughs> <laughs>